evening. My name is Lindley Jumble. I'm the Director of Council's Community Wellbeing Directorate and it is my pleasure to be your MC for tonight's event. To commence proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you to everyone who has joined us tonight. Gambling Harm Awareness Week is held in October each year. It is an initiative of the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation and provides an opportunity to talk about the harms associated with gambling and the effects this can have on communities, families, friends, workplaces and individuals. To open tonight's event, it is my pleasure to invite our Deputy Mayor, Councillor Jasmine Nguyen, to say a few words on behalf of Council. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. Thanks, Molly. Good evening, everyone. I would like to acknowledge my fellow Brinkbank Councillors who's registered, Councillor Sam David, Councillor Mira Kerr, Councillor Bruce Lancashire, and Councillor Regina Tarkos. And of course, our special guest speakers, the Reverend Tim Costello, AO from the Alliance for Gambling Reform, Professor Samantha Thomas from Deakin University, and Ian Correa, a lived experience advocate and community educator with the Respin program. As well as the community organizations and service providers, and everyone else joining this broadcast tonight. On behalf of the Brimbank City Council, I would like to also acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hello, and thank you all for joining me for Gambling Harm Awareness Week. As a Deputy Mayor of Greenbank City Council, it is my pleasure to open tonight's community conversation, preventing and reducing gambling harm in Greenbank event. You see, Greenbank is heavily impacted by gambling harm. We have the highest losses from poker machines of any local government area in Victoria. And since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, losses from wagering and sports betting, most of which occurs online, it has also increased significantly in Victoria. And Brewbank also experienced record losses from electronic gambling machines when gaming venues reopened in 2020. The looming reopening of gaming venues after current restrictions now poses significant risks for some parts of our community. Tonight's event will highlight some of the research, lived experience and community responses to preventing and reducing gambling harm in Broombank. It will also focus on the key drivers of gambling harm in our community and highlight the regulatory reform needed to protect vulnerable groups. You'll be hearing from our guest speakers who have a wealth of experience and expertise and you can also join the conversation during the Q&A session. October is also Mental Health Month and gambling harm can also affect people's mental health, including through increased anxiety and depression. With this in mind, we also have a range of practical information to share, including community-based resources and details of local support services. I also encourage you to visit Council's Your Say Broombank page, where you will find information and resources to assist in the prevention and reduction of gambling harm. I hope everyone gains from tonight's important conversation. 
I'll now hand you back to our MC. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. Before I introduce our first guest, I would like to remind you that you can join the conversation through the comments section of this Facebook Live event. I encourage you to share your thoughts and it will be time for our guests to answer some of your questions during the panel discussion. I also want to acknowledge that some of the topics raised tonight during tonight's event may be difficult for some viewers. Free and confidential gamblers help services are available to anyone experiencing harm from their own or someone else's gambling. Please call 1800 858 858 for support. And this number will be displayed on the screen during tonight's event. I would now like to welcome our first guest, Professor Samantha Thomas from Deakin University. Samantha specialises in the commercial and political determinants of health and public health advocacy. She also specialises in understanding the range of factors that may contribute to the prevention and reduction of gambling-related harm. Samantha has conducted a range of studies in the area of gambling, including the impact of gambling advertising on young people. The relationship between young men and sports betting, the impacts of young women's gambling, and factors that contribute to the normalisation of gambling. Tonight, Samantha will set the scenes for us by talking about a public health approach to preventing and reducing gambling harm. She will also discuss her research into the gambling behaviours and attitudes of older adults in Victoria, a project which engaged directly older people living in Brimbank. Thanks, Samantha. Thanks so much, everyone. And it's really great to be able to join you this evening. I'm gonna ask um, for the presentation to be started now, please. So first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge my co-authors tonight. We have a great team of researchers at Deakin, and we're also very proud to say that we do not accept any funding from the gambling industry for our research. We're also very grateful to local councils like Brimbank for the support of our research and for us inviting us to present tonight. Next slide, please. So what is a public health approach to gambling? Traditionally in gambling, we've focused on the behaviours of individuals. This is what we call an individual responsibility approach. Many of you will have heard the phrase gamble responsibly, and traditionally we looked at the flaws associated with individuals and how they engaged with gambling products. A public health approach is slightly different. We look at the range of sociocultural factors, so that's things like peer or family behaviours, environmental factors, such as the embedding of uh, gambling venues in local communities, commercial factors, such as the advertising and marketing and design of gambling products, and political factors, including the regulation that sits around gambling products. Most importantly, advocacy is central to public health, and a lot of the work that we do with our research team and with our research is to try and convince decision makers about the need for gambling reform. Next slide, please. When we look at the behaviours of older adults, 
Most research has focused on them as individuals. What drives problem gambling behaviors for these individuals? Our research looks at the broader range of determinants, so the socio-cultural, environmental, commercial, and political factors that may influence older adults to gamble. Next slide, please. We know that older adults are very vulnerable to gambling-related harm, and I'm sure many people uh, who are watching this will know someone in their family or community who has experienced harm from gambling. We know that they have high rates of gambling compared with other age groups, and they frequently engage with high-intensity gambling products such as poker machines. We know also that they may be additionally vulnerable due to things such as social isolation and loneliness. Next slide, please. When we've talked to older adults about their gambling, we find that there are a range of factors that influence them to attend gambling venues and to gamble on a range of different products. Loneliness and life stresses are key risk factors for regularly attending gambling venues. Uh, we know that many older adults will seek social connection in gambling venues. And while there are a range of positive activities for older adults in these venues, they also coexist with harmful products such as poker machines. We also know that there are key time periods and life events that contribute to risk factors for older people. For example, retiring from a job, recently losing a loved one. We also know that older women are particularly vulnerable due to things such as difficulties in relationships and adapting to retirement. And there are a whole range of factors that intersect to influence people's and older adults' pathways to different gambling products. Next slide, please. I'd like now to take you on a bit of a journey through the voices of some of the older adults in our research. First, why do they gamble? Why do they gamble on these products that we know can be very risky and harmful for them? One of the main factors that emerges is the social factor. So the fact that a lot of gambling environments and, and venues contain a range of different social activities that are incredibly appealing to older adults. We know that many older adults see these venues as safe spaces where they can go by themselves um, or where they can meet up with friends. But as you'll see in these quotes, there are also a range of gambling products in these venues. And as older adults tell us, they often transition from non-gambling activities, such as morning melodies or going to the bistro or listening to music, into the areas of the venues that are more harmful for them. As the, um, young, uh, as the older gentleman in the middle of this slide says, I only gamble on the pokies when I come to the bowls club. You know, I'll have a few games on the EGMs. I might do three games or something, and that's about it. It just breaks a bit of boredom. Again, as you'll see, often people engage in other activities before they gamble. So as the last lady on the slide says, we used to go to bingo and what used to happen, then we'd end up with the pokies. I always worked out, walked out with an empty purse. Next slide, please. 
We know also that there are a range of environmental determinants that may contribute to risk for older adults. Gambling venues are often perceived as safe, inclusive and welcoming. They have parking right outside the door or shuttle buses that take them from home to the venue. We know that older women tell us that they can often sit by themselves without stigma or judgment from people at poker machines, something that they don't feel like they can do in other community spaces. Some women in our research have described seeking refuge from violent or abusive home environments at gambling venues. But it is the co-location of gambling products in these environments that become problematic for older people. Next slide, please. We also know that older adults sometimes don't understand the nature and risks associated with high technology gambling products. So you'll see here in these um, quotes from older adults that there are a range of misconceptions about how gambling machines work. Um, we see, for example, the middle lady who says, well, there's nothing worse than sitting there watching them and they're spinning and spinning and you think, I'm tired, but I might win something with the next 10 cents, you know? And so there are a range of things that are associated with these machines that contribute to older adults gambling more than they normally would and for longer periods than they normally would. Next slide, please. We also know that young, older adults often don't perceive that they are at risk of harm from these products. Um, older adults have very strong feelings of personal responsibility and often don't understand the range of factors that may influence uh, their risks uh, for these, uh, their risks to these products. As this older gentleman says, you've got to look at what you go there for. Do you go there just to have the meal? Do you go there to sit in the lounge for four hours and drink yourself silly? Do you go there for the morning melodies and have a dance and tea and scones in the morning and a three-course meal at lunchtime? Or do you go there to sit at the poker machines? Again, the location of venues often contributes to risk, but also perceptions of reduced risk. For example, when venues are located in shopping venues, for example, or in shopping centres. So as this lady says, I go to the one, it's not a club or a pub, it's a shopping centre, I'd probably say. I do my shopping there. So I think the bus is not for an hour. I'll go into the pokies for a little while. So it's just sort of, I'm there. It isn't as if I make a special trip to go there, but it's a bit of a trap because I'm fairly intelligent and sensible, but I sit there and before I know it, I've missed that bus and I'm waiting for the next one. Next slide, please. We also know that older adults have quite significant experiences of harm associated with gaming machines. Um, we know for many older adults that they misunderstand the way that products work, but also that they uh, find that messages about responsibility or responsible gambling can be deeply shaming and problematic for them. Many of the um, participants in our research talk to us about the need to reframe responsible gambling messages to start to give them honest information about the way that products work, the design of products, rather than simply telling them to set limits and control themselves. As this first lady says, hindsight is excellent. I think a lot of people have the same experience though. You don't really see the dangers of it at the time because most of us wouldn't even embark on it, playing the pokies, if you could see the future. As the second lady says, 
I came out hating myself and thinking it was all my fault. If I'd just been more responsible, because the science said it, responsible gambling, set a limit and stick to it. I hated all those phrases. They made it worse. They made it my fault and they made it impossible for me to ask for help. And finally, I didn't even think about it. You're lost in another world. Are you going to seek help? You just don't because we're all different. So, you know, people will seek help at different times, but you just keep thinking that you'll be okay, but you're not. Next slide, please. We would argue that if we start to think carefully about the range of factors that contribute to gambling harm in the community, that we must look beyond the individual. We must look at how gambling products are embedded in our local community, their accessibility and availability, the fact that they're open for so many hours a day, their marketing strategies, how they may create pathways to venues through non-gambling products, which then leads people to move into gaming rooms, and the political determinants, such as regulation, which ultimately influences the provision of these products in our communities. I hope this presentation has provided a good start for our discussion tonight. Um, and again, thank you very much for attending. And I hope that we as a community can work towards um, making sure that our communities are free from gambling harm. Thank you. Thanks, Samantha. Our next guest is Ian Priya. Ian has lived in Melbourne's West for most of his life and has his own lived experience and expertise of gambling harm. Now he is a community educator and lived experience advocate working with the Respin Gambling Awareness Speakers Bureau. Tonight, he will be sharing some of his personal experiences of gambling harm and recovery to help reduce stigma and encourage people to seek help if they need it. Thanks, Ian. Yes, yeah, so I'd just uh, like to thank uh, the Brimbank uh, City Council for um, inviting me tonight to this presentation. Um, and welcome to uh, all those who are watching uh, uh, the stream. Um, my story uh, sort of goes back to, uh, to 1980 uh, when I was 15 years old. Um, I would travel to school uh, on a bus and then travel home on a bus. And uh, the bus would drive past a TAB. Uh, I, the um, the uh, TAB was close to a set of traffic lights and uh, often the bus would stop at the traffic lights and I'd look out and see these guys pretty joyous, pretty happy, joking around, having a bit of fun. And, and I thought to myself, I wouldn't mind... Uh, you know, being happy and joyous and having a bit of fun myself. So um, I used to uh, uh, get a small amount of pocket money for bus fare and uh, and lunch uh, at school. Um, and I decided that uh, one day that uh, I'd walk to school and save uh, the bus fare. Uh, and then I'd walk home and uh, I went past the TAB and put a dollar or two on a horse uh, and... That was that was fine. Uh, I think I might have had a win the first time round. Um, my interest has always been in uh, figures and uh, data. Uh, I'm actually a uh, statistical and data analyst, um, so I'd keep uh, records of uh, started keeping records of all the horse races, all the horses, all the jockeys, 
um, and ended up with uh, a ton of uh, uh, spreadsheets with all sorts of information on it. Uh, um, so I then went on to uh, stop buying lunch at work, at school. Um, I would walk to school and walk home, which was a now and 10 minute trip. Um, and I'd pop into the TAB on most uh, days and just put on a couple of bets. Um, I acknowledge that uh, I didn't have a, um, I wasn't suffering gambling harm at that stage, but it was the culmination and the build up to uh, what I would suffer uh, later on. Um, I think it was about 1985, uh, I was going to, uh, to uni. Um, I had a nighttime job um, and then during the day, there were my friends and uh, weren't around because they were busy working uh, themselves or attending school. So after my night job um, and schooling, I'd uh, look at some of the facts and figures and uh, go and put a few bets on. In 1985, uh, working a night job, I'd actually saved um, a fairly considerable amount of money um, back in those days. And uh, my data that I'd collected had identified a, a horse um, that just couldn't lose. Um, it met all the criteria that I'd taken down on, uh, on my spreadsheets. Uh, it had the right weight on it. It had the right uh, cloth number. The jockey uh, was right. The weather conditions were right for this horse. The distance was all the, it just couldn't lose. Um, so I had uh, $5,000 at the time saved up uh, from a couple of years of uh, working a night job. And I put the $5,000 on the nose of this horse. Uh, the horse actually came eighth in the race and I lost my $5,000. Uh, at this time, I sort of thought to myself, well, I'm obviously doing something wrong and uh, this isn't the way to uh, to make my millions as, as I thought at the time. Um, so I started having a look at uh, the lotteries and uh, Tets Lotto and back in the uh, mid eighties, there was only one draw a week on a Saturday. And I started uh, gathering information on, on the numbers, uh, how often they came out, how often they didn't. And as I gathered more data, uh, I started off playing one ticket and I sort of got to the stage where I was spending $150, $200 um, on Tetzlotto because um, the possibilities as I gathered more data uh, would, um, uh, would sort of allow for more combinations to possibly come out. Again, I didn't make my millions on Tetzlotto. Um, and in 1991, when the uh, papers were introduced to Victoria, um, at first I wasn't attracted to them. I thought they weren't something that I'd be interested in. Uh, but my partner at the time suggested that we go for a meal and just try it out, see what it's like. So we went off, uh, had a meal at one of the venues, and uh, after we'd had our meal, we um, went across, uh, went to the next room where the pokies were. And back in 1991, uh, the venues were very dingy, dark, um, the carpet smelt. Um, yeah, it was just not a very inviting uh, environment, but... Anyway, went in there, put a few dollars in and thought, yeah, this is not a hell of a lot of fun. But my partner sort of continued to sort of um, coax me to uh, go out for a meal at, at the venues. The meals were fairly cheap. 
Um, so each fortnight, I think uh, me and my partner then would uh, would go out and have a meal and have a bit of a flutter on the pokies. I think it was uh, five or six months down the track that uh, I found myself in a venue on my own. Um, as dark and dingy and as smelly as it was, I think I'd been hooked. Um, in... 1992, uh, me and my partner purchased the house and just, not showing off, but just to sort of give you an indication of how much money I was sort of going through, me and my partner then were able to pay our house off in three and a half years. The three and a half years weren't too bad because I had a target. I had something that I needed to pay for, which was the house. So I sort of felt that I was uh, under control and things were traveling okay. But unfortunately, in 1998, when we paid off the house, all of a sudden there was all this excess uh, money uh, that I was earning and it was ending up in my bank account. Um, in the meantime, I married this woman. Um, but in 1999, I was the payer of bills and uh, sort of oversaw the uh, finances and the budget. Um, and in uh, 1999, um, I started to receive... Um, reminder notices for bills. I started to receive uh, second no reminder notices, thirds, potential legal proceedings. And I thought, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to uh, to sort this out? Um, so I decided that I'd get a credit card and I'd be able to pay me bills and everything would be okay. The um, red reminder notices would disappear. But unfortunately, uh, credit cards have a cash advance uh, option on them. So I soon found that uh, I um, discovered that and uh, I started to gamble with the uh, cash advances on the credit cards. Uh, it was about uh, 12 months later. Um, again, I found myself in, uh, in strife, unable to pay the bills, read reminder notices, so I applied for another credit card and the bank was quite uh, willing to give me another credit card. I was earning a fairly good wage, um, so they didn't know I was gambling. Uh, so they felt that another credit card wouldn't be a, a drama and they, they approved it. Um, by 2005, I had eight credit cards to uh, pay one off and uh, with the other. Um, and it was really getting messy. It was really getting difficult. Um, 1999, when uh, I was unable to pay my bills and I was sort of wrecking my brain as to uh, how I was going to uh, deal with the situation, my mental health started to deteriorate. Uh, over the next uh, eight years, um, I would uh, suffer uh, panic attacks, anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. In 2007, one thing that uh, us gamblers do is... Uh, we lie, we fabricate, um, we become decept uh, deceptive. Um, and uh, my wife had uh, pretty much had enough and she asked me to leave the family home in 2007. I really couldn't argue with her because I was out of control and I sort of had an inkling that I was out of control, uh, but I was still in denial. At this stage, I had three kids, three children. Um, I had a daughter who was uh, six, um, a son who was four, and another son who was two. 
when I left the family home, uh, I really had nowhere to go because I'd alienated myself from uh, my family and friends back in uh, the early to mid-80s because I just didn't have time uh, to socialise with them. I was keeping all this data, uh, researching this data. Um, I was attending uh, gambling venues, uh, TABs um, and bogey venues. So I sort of estranged myself. So I had nowhere to go in 2007 um, when I was uh, asked to leave the family home. So uh, I started to live locally in my car. Um, But unfortunately, the police in my area um, weren't too keen on that. And they would uh, drive past at midnight, uh, knock on my window and wake me up and tell me that it wasn't a good idea to be sleeping where I was, that I needed to move on. So I'd move on uh, down the street a bit, hide behind a different bush with my car, and uh, subsequently the same policeman would drive past a couple of hours later, notice that I was uh, hiding behind uh, a new bush or a new tree uh, in my car, and they would come and knock on the window again and ask me to move on. Um, So... uh, I, I realised that uh, living in my local area in the car wasn't uh, uh, in metropolitan Melbourne uh, wasn't really uh, an option. So I moved to uh, I drove to Anglesey and found a an area there which uh, I could safely and uh, without being woken up several times a night um, I could actually sleep there. Um, there was some uh, issues with uh, with sleeping down there. There were hoons, especially during winter, who would come around and bang on my windows and uh, try to break into the car to steal and do whatever they wanted to do. So um, I moved to uh, an, a place in Bowen Heads, which I knew that I would be pretty um, uh, safe and uh, you know, I wouldn't have uh, police knocking on my window. So... Um, so I did that for uh, a couple of years, um, and by uh, sort of moving away from the metropolitan area, um, my work started to uh, to suffer. Um, I would bring in sick. Um, I would bring in that uh, my card broken down. Um, but the truth of the matter was, I didn't have money to uh, to pay for petrol. Um, when I first left the family home in two thousand seven, um, I had a uh, access um, agreement uh, with my ex-partner, which said that I could have access to the kids uh, on a fortnightly basis. And the first two times that I picked up uh, the kids and we slept in the car, it was great fun. Um, They were down by the ocean, uh, by the sea. Um, You know, it was an adventure sleeping in the car. But unfortunately, um, I couldn't really afford to feed them because I sort of was spending all my money on gambling. Um, you know, it was very basics like a pie or a sausage roll or um, it just wasn't. Uh, so after a few visits, I spoke to my partner, or ex-partner, and sort of said to her that uh, at the time I wasn't in a position to uh, to have access to the kids on a regular basis and she agreed, uh, still not knowing what it was that, uh, that was affecting me. She actually... Uh, when she asked me to leave the family home, she actually thought that I was uh, having an affair, which wasn't the case. Um, but anyway, uh, I allowed her to uh, think that because uh, yeah, I thought that the shame of having an affair was probably better than the shame faced by being a gambler um, that was suffering gambling harm. 
So um, <clears throat> in 2010, um, my daughter sent me a message that she never wanted to talk to me again, um, which was uh, quite um, demoralizing. And it was a culmination of me attempting to take my life for the first time. Obviously, I was unsuccessful because, as you can see, I'm here talking to you today. Um, again, there was a... Uh, didn't stop me gambling. I kept gambling. 2012, there was another... Um, incident that culminated in uh, me attempting to take my life a second time and again unsuccessful um during this time i i had sought counseling but i just didn't seem to connect with the counselors and i don't know if it just was that i wasn't ready for uh, for what they had to, to say to me um in 2014 i attempted to take my life for the third time fortunately on this third occasion i actually was struck in the head and I was knocked unconscious. And when I came to, I hadn't seen my kids for regularly for uh, six or seven years. But when I came to, my kids flashed through my mind. They were all that I was thinking of. My family, who I estranged myself from, my mother and father, my brother and my sister. And uh, I just came to the realisation that I had to uh, do something for myself. I had to get myself in a better place. My mental health had absolutely deteriorated to uh, to a terrible, uh, terrible level. So uh, I contacted Gambler's Help, um, and I was sent to. I was uh, referred to IPC, um, who have an office, you know, a couple of offices in Brimbang, and I connected with a counsellor at Gambler's Help, who was amazing. Uh, we connected straight away. Uh, the way that she went about um, talking to me really resonated with me. Um, and we had a few sessions. And then there was a, a program that uh, they introduced, which um, was a uh, educational program, which went for 10 weeks. Um, very apprehensive at the start to actually attend. But once I got there, there were 10 or 12 other people who were suffering gambling harm. And all of a sudden, I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only idiot who was doing what I was doing. Um, still not seeing my daughter. Um, I had some contact with my my sons. Um, and in 2014-15, when I uh, felt that I was uh, in a position where um, I wasn't gambling and I, was, uh, I had some fi uh, finance behind me, I started to again connect with my kids. Um, my daughter didn't want to see me. She wasn't interested in spending any time with me. So um, I reconnected with my kids. Um, I also saw a financial counsellor at Gambler's Help, and we uh, worked out that my debts were at about $100,000 on credit card uh, debt. Um, I realised that this debt was mine and mine alone and uh, I had uh, spent the money, so I wanted to repay it. So in my recovery, um, one of the things that I was told to do was to uh, talk to my family about the issues that I had been experiencing for the previous 34 years. And I actually did, and I was very surprised with the reaction. My family was very, very supportive 
they were very understanding and they were very caring. Unfortunately, I still did not have contact with my daughter. Um, in 2018, I finished paying off the uh, credit card debt that I had and I actually applied for a home loan, which I was granted. I think yesterday I counted and I own nine pickets of my front fence, but at least I've got a roof over my head. I'm able to pay my bills in a timely manner and I'm able to feed myself. My mental health uh, in 2015, when I gave up gambling, dramatically improved uh, very quickly. Um, and I have no anxiety. I have no uh, panic attacks. I think I have uh, a level of depression, which is similar to probably most of the population when uh, when things in life don't go exactly the way they you would expect. Um, but then in 2018, um, my daughter reached out to me 10 years after I had not spoken to her. Uh, she actually came and lived with me for an, a period of time. Um, and uh, it's fan it was fantastic. So my life completely turned around in 2015. In 2016, I became public speaker on uh, gambling harm, uh, the dangers of gambling harm. And in 2018, I... I actually had the opportunity to um, co-facilitate a program, uh, an eight-week program, uh, a, an educational program for uh, people suffering gambling arm, and we've now run 12 programs uh, since 2018. Well, that's my story. Uh, thanks for, uh, for listening, and uh, I'm happy to take any questions uh, or, you know, if... Uh, if you wish to uh, put any questions in the comments area, I'm sure I'll be able to answer them at a later date. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. That was such a powerful story that um, you shared with us and we really appreciate um, the the honesty that you've shown tonight and also, um, I guess, you know, being able to share a really, really important journey that you've taken. So thank you. Our next guest is the Reverend Tim Costello. Tim is one of Australia's most respected community leaders and a sought after voice on social justice issues, leadership and ethics. He was Chief Executive of World Vision Australia for 13 years and is now a spokesperson for the Alliance for Gambling Reform, which campaigns for law reform to prevent harm from gambling. In earlier roles, Tim was the National President of the Baptist Union of Australia and even spent time in local government as the Mayor of St Kilda. Tim joins us tonight to share his thoughts on the key opportunities and challenges for gambling reform in Victoria and how these can help to prevent and reduce gambling harm in Brimbank. Thanks, Tim. I trust you can hear me okay. Uh... I uh, am delighted to be with you. I want to acknowledge the uh, Indigenous owners of the land I'm on, the Bunurong people, and their elders past, present and future. Um, I also uh, want to say uh, I'm always incredibly moved when I hear people sharing vulnerably their stories because uh, that's how I got involved. Um, back in 1993, pokies had just been introduced to Victoria uh, back then. Uh, 
I was working as a lawyer. Uh, a woman from out your municipal district came and sought me to sought my legal advice to represent her. She'd stolen sixty thousand dollars from uh, her employer. Now this was a woman in her middle-aged years who owned a house, who uh, had three wonderful children, who didn't smoke or drink, and uh, had never been in trouble with the police ever. And when pokies were introduced, she found herself, uh, like so many others, inexorably drawn. Some of the uh, anxieties in her life seemed to go away when she was in that zone in front of the machine. She uh, developed a problem. She ended up stealing uh, $60,000 from her employer to um, feed her problem. I represented her. And this is back in 1992, 93, I think it was, might have been 94. Uh, she got four years jail. I remember visiting her after she was uh, in prison in Tarangara, female prison, and just sitting, listening to her talk and saying to myself, how does a person, middle age, who's never been in trouble with the law ever in her life, end up? in prison for four years. Her lived experience, her vulnerability, if you like, actually set me off on the path back in 1993 of saying something is profoundly wrong. You, you know the story a bit from there. Uh, my brother was treasurer. I convinced him to do the Productivity Commission in 1999. It found that 20% of the world's pokies are in Australia. Worse, 75% of the world's pokies in clubs and pubs are in Australia, 75%. Most pokies are in destination gambling casinos. You've got to get there. You've got to have enough money to get home. Uh, the accessibility to gambling is what, the, is what the Productivity Commission said is why we have the greatest losses per head anywhere in the world. Those losses, by the way, are 40% higher than the nation that comes second. So I've been on for reform ever since. Now, you know your situation in Brimbank, time and again, the highest poker machine losses of any LGA in Victoria, the community disproportionately affected by gambling harm. You really are specifically targeted by a predatory gambling industry to maximise their profits at the expense of the community's safety. Uh, you contribute disproportionately to the $2 billion the state government rakes in. Uh, half a million, half a million uh, dollars a day lost. Uh, the Kialba Hotel alone took $14.5 from the community last financial year. You would find no joy in knowing that the $2 billion is nothing to the damage that's done. So the uh, uh, VRGF, the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation, has said the harm done to Victorians by gambling is $7 billion. Crime and bankruptcy, domestic violence, 20% of all spending on mental health in Victoria is gambling related. To, for $2 billion, disproportionately coming from B, um, Brimbank, and $7 billion of damage, so you have disproportionately the most damage too. So let me say that I know the council and I know many people there are starting to stand up. The pokies aren't in 
Bayside Council. <laughs> That's Brighton. It has the lowest uh, losses anywhere in the world. They're not in wealthy areas. They're disproportionately in poorer postcodes. And this is a profound social justice question of, of inequality. What can we do about it? Well, some good news. Firstly, we are starting to tell the story. Some of you saw the big deal last night on the ABC about political donations uh, to uh, both major parties. Gambling was featured. And um, what we discovered last week, thanks to the ABC investigative reports, we thought there was $40 million of gambling donations over the last 20 years. It's 80 million, 83 million actually, double. Uh, I know this from personal experience uh, in 2017, both sides of po politics and Premier Dan Andrews, then it was Matthew Guy, now back, but then he was opposition leader in 2017. They quietly, secretly brought forward the renewal of Pokies licences. They weren't up for renewal to 2022. This is 2017. They extended in 2017 Pokies licences to 2045. The next year, for the 2018 election, the Australian Hotels Association, who'd been lobbying for this extension of Pokies licences, gave $670,000 to the Labor Party for the election, a payoff directly for extending those licences to 2045. It was about a half a million dollars to the Liberal Party they gave. I was so outraged, I went with some women who had uh, broken the silence about their gambling problems, like you've just heard. We're in the speakers, we're up in the gallery, the visitors gallery. I interrupted Parliament before the vote and I made a speech from the gallery. The funny thing was they let me talk for five minutes and then I was told... This is totally wrong and how dare I and escorted out as you'd expect. A couple of the Labor women who all did vote for the extension of Pokies licenses came up to me in King's Hall. Sheepishly, they said, we agree with you. We feel very ashamed. Of course, they voted for the extension. But now we are starting to crack the story of the capture of government, both sides of politics and government, by pokies and Brimbank has been disproportionately contributing to that. It's completely unjust. Uh, in terms, finally, of what we can do, I forget how long you wanted me to speak, but I'll finish up now. Um, we are seeing a bit of a cultural change. Most AFL clubs are getting out of pokies. When Collingwood got out, Eddie Maguire, still president, then rang me. You've been a pain in the backside, Tim. It cost us some money at Collingwood. But it's the right thing to do. I feel really good, Tim, he said. In fact, Tim, I feel like it's a spiritual experience. Now, you make your call on Eddie and spiritual experiences, but that's how he felt. I'm working with um, now some of the ex-Hawthorne players who are challenging Jeff Kenner for the presidency, and they are running on Hawthorne getting rid of its pokies. Uh, we are seeing uh, some extraordinary narrative shifts thanks to the crown royal commission seeing the crown has enabled uh, organized crime and with its pokies has done profound irresponsible gambling harm against all its professed codes 
we don't know the full finding of that Royal Commission. We uh, are to find out at the end of the month. But that changes the narrative. The narrative is changing whenever uh, I uh, say, how can it be that in Victoria we have the most uh, open pokies anywhere in, in, in Australia, probably the world, from 9am to 5am. 9 to 5 is not Dolly Parton's song, 9 to 5 for the working woman. 9am to 5am. And what we now know is that venues stagger even their closing dates to keep them effectively open even longer. The Deer Park Hotel closes at 8am. The Deer Park Club opens at 8am. They're just 800 metres apart. Pushing on reducing the hours. Nothing good happens in a pokies venue after midnight. Uh, we are pushing particularly, not just on donations and AFL clubs getting out, but saying we're not prohibitionists, but just do what the Productivity Commission report said. One dollar bet spins. Slow the machines down so you can't lose dollars so rapidly. There's a heap of other things we're pushing on. I feel at last we are starting to get somewhere because... Uh, of the 24 billion lost by Australians in gambling each year, 14 billion comes from pokies. Pokies are the crack cocaine still of gambling. Uh, those who are in front of that machine will say, the zone, I now understand because the dopamine release when there's a near miss, first pyramid, second, third, fourth, the fifth pyramid is always just one above the line and one below the line near miss. I now know that is deliberate to release the dopamine to hit the pleasure center of my brain and get me potentially addicted. As soon as you push the button in that split nanosecond of pushing the button, you have won or lost. The programming designed by psychologists for it to be four pyramids all in a row and you only need the fifth and it's always just one above or one below the line is rigged to release dopamine, to addict you. These, these are predatory machines. We are going to be fighting more court cases on that, on a range of other measures that the Alliance has. I want to thank Brimbank for being a member of the Alliance, the Council, and uh, hope that what I've shared has been, has been helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. And also just want to acknowledge all the great advocacy that you've led over many years on this really important issue. We have now reached the panel discussion and Q&A part of tonight's event. If you haven't already, please post a comment or question and we will try to get some of these. To guide you through this next part of the event, I will now hand over to Brooke Quinn, Council's Social Policy Officer, Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Lindley, and thanks to all our wonderful speakers tonight. Um, my name is Brooke Quinn. My role at Brimbank is to oversee the implementation of Council's electronic gambling policy, and tonight I'll be continuing the discussion and posing some of your questions to our guests. Um, so as Lindley said, please add some, some questions if, you, if there's anything that you're interested to learn. But to get things started, I want to highlight some of the work that's occurred through Council's Changing the Brimback Story Invest in You program. This program was funded by the Victorian Gambling Foundation and worked with a range of communities to co-design gambling harm prevention resources. 
um, and I'll invite some comments from the panel. Um, so let's begin with the Vietnamese community um, who worked through the, uh, the program. At the outset of the program, some of the key issues identified were the stigma that we've heard about today, misconceptions about gambling harm, and limited information on early warning signs. And the project went on to develop a series of personal short story films, posters and brochures, as well as some animation film that we'll see tonight. Um, the film that we'll see tonight, it's a, it's a short film, but it was produced by two young Vietnamese women from the local area, and it draws on the words developed by community members who participated in an oral story time session that was held as part of Council's Libraries After Dark program. So let's have a look at this film and then we can come back and, and talk a bit more. It can be harmful, especially for people that have experienced trauma and a lack of belonging. Studies have shown that the release of dopamine during gambling affects the brain in a similar way to addictive substances. The brain changes when gambling becomes a habit. This can mean that people with gambling addiction find it hard to control the desire to gamble. Gambling addiction can be treated with counseling, compassion, and mindfulness, not judgment. If you are struggling with gambling, there are people who understand and can help. Invest in you, connect with community, join free and low-cost activities at your library, neighborhood house, or leisure center. Contact Gamblers Help at 1-800-858-858. Do any of those messages um, resonate with your experiences, some of the um, discussion around um, stigma and, and and those messages? Oh, look, uh, certainly do. Um, the uh, release of dopamine, as uh, Tim was saying earlier, is uh, a determining factor um, on people getting hooked to these things. Um, the way that the machines are designed um, just sort of uh, uh, contribute to uh, to people getting hooked. Um, Look, the stigma um, which uh, is associated with uh, with gambling harm, uh, a lot of it is actually, I feel, is self-stigma um, in that uh, we uh, feel that we're going to be looked at uh, as losers, uh, no-hopers, uh, hopeless. Um, but there is some stigma from the community as well. Uh, um, and uh, I think that... Uh, the stigma um, and shame uh, that's associated to it needs to be uh, um, publicised and uh, put out there um, because um, there's uh, there's no uh, no need for the stigma and shame. Um, people just need to get help um, and be be in a position where they feel that they can go and get help without being judged. So. Thanks. Um, we'll move to um, the Pacifica community now and I'll come back to our panel um, and we'll also come to some audience questions a bit later. But um, in, in the Invest in You project working with the Pacific, 
Pacifica community, one of the things that was noted really early, there was a lack of targeted resources for, the, um, for Pacifica communities. Um, and subsequently, new and, and existing gamblers help brochures were developed and translated into a range of languages. And I should say, um, this material will soon be available on um, the Council um, Reducing Gambling Harm website um, over the coming weeks. Um, so the group also developed a short video which aimed to dispel some of the myths that we've heard about today around the pokies and featured some well-known members of the local community. Um, so let's take a look at this video and then I'll come back um, to our panel. The highest poking machine losses in Victoria. Print bags. I love print bags. Whoa, 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 I said losses. Oh, snap. Yep, every year, one poking machine earns roughly around $150,000. Guys, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And a pensioner earns roughly around $24,000. Guys, that's not a lot of money. Can I have a look? Yeah, sure. See, Bank has two leisure centres, five libraries, 12 neighbourhood houses, two cinemas, and 952 poker machines. It's so easy to get hooked by the flashlights, the sounds of the machines, that hope of winning free spins. But are you sure? How do I verify that risk? Well, are you using the machines more than once a week? Are you borrowing money from family and friends and lying about how you're spending it? Not paying your bills? Telling lies and frequently taking days off. Absent during the day. If this is you, then you need to do something about it. It's time to invest in you. Get busy and get yourself outside of the pokies. Volunteer at your local community group. Join your local gym. Spend time outdoors. Oh, I know. You can spend more time with family and friends. That's right, sis. It's better to keep yourself busy outside of the pokies and safe from gambling harm. Invest in you, your family, and your community. Know the signs of gambling harm and reach out for help. Uh, Samantha, this video highlighted the importance of alternative activities and many of which are offered by council, things like libraries, parks, um, neighbourhood houses. Um, what do we know about the importance of alternative activities in preventing and reducing harm from gambling? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say what an incredible video from the Pacifica community. I wish we saw those gambling harm videos and ads on our TV at night rather than, you know, these terrible responsible gambling ads that we see. And, and you know, if we hear one thing consistently across every single population group that we speak to in our research, from children through to young women through to older adults, it's their significant criticism of a responsible gambling message. Um, ultimately, if you are promoting responsible gambling, you're promoting gambling. And I love this video from the Pacifica community because what it's doing is providing that honest information for communities about how much is lost, um, how much these venues and machines are dominating our community recreational spaces and what we can do about them.
Um, we know that alternatives are really, really important for people in our communities. Um, we look a lot at recreational alternatives for women. Um, we hear a lot about young men and sports betting, but we know that women have about the same rate of participation in gambling as young men or as men, but often are missing from the conversation about gambling harm. Um, one of the things that we hear from young women in our study is that they want safe, inclusive spaces to go, places that have accessible parking for them that are safe for them to go to at night. Um, we know that schemes like Library After Dark are really important in starting to provide those alternatives. But I think the more that we provide community with honest information about venues, the amount of money that they're taking away from our communities, the more that we can convince people to use alternative recreation spaces. Yeah, thank you. Um, we'll, we'll move on to our um, final video and then we'll open the floor for some more discussion. But I, I'll just mention as well that the community worked very closely with um, our project officer working on this. It was a really genuine co-design process. So there was some really strong engagement with our local communities. And the third community um, that worked on the project was the African diaspora community in Brimbank. And through this project, a film was produced, which draws on real life experiences and highlights the complex relationship between gaming venues and new and emerging communities. And several community members have also um, completed training so that they'll be able to conduct some gambling um, awareness training and using this film um, as a key resource within that process. So we'll have a look at this film and then we'll come back for some more discussion. This place has been kinder to me than the world has. Don't judge me, please. And here is my oasis of peace in the midst of the chaotic desert that surrounds me. This is the only establishment to offer us a seat at the table. I sit down, roll the dice to reverse the bad hand I was dealt in life. I spin the wheel in hopes of brightening my future. This machine gives me a chance I wasn't afforded. This machine gives me hope. This machine truly gives me hope. Without pokey machines or a booth, gambling has found its way into the lives of the youth. It's just as addictive as anything they do. It's just as addictive as the games they play. It's just as addictive as the sports they watch. It's creeping in it's creeping in. Hey yo! 
Hey, you know, that's not the best way to invest in yourself, bro. Beautiful lights, soothing music, relaxing fragrances. It's all inviting. But now I see it's all a trap. The thrill, the way time stands still. It's all a trap. I'm ashamed of how unashamed I've become. Spent all my money, forgot all my responsibilities, and I've been here for countless hours. This isn't an oasis. It's a mirage that reels you into self-destruction. Community, community, community. This is my greatest wealth. My sisters, my rock, my community. Thank you for helping me. Community, community. Tim, I'm interested in your impressions of, of that film, some of those, um, the dynamics around new and emerging communities and finding their identity in local communities and, and I guess the role that um, gambling can play in that sometimes. Sure. Um, that had such longing and pathos and tragedy in it, I found it very moving. And uh, the African community is very dear to my heart. I uh, Go every you get every uh, year in January. Done for the last twelve years to Uganda and to South Sudan, and uh, have a lot of deep friendships with uh, the community here. Uh, firstly, many have suffered great trauma just to be here, and secondly, the desire to make a new life and assimilate is met with a dominant narrative, almost a narrative with tsunami proportions that to belong here, you must actually gamble. Uh, we have some outstanding South Sudanese footballers, Alir, Alir and Magic Door, but any of the African community looking to them as their heroes would see that we have the sports bet Brownlow medal, we, we have the sports bet grand final, we have a tsunami of ads, uh, that the AFL allows and uh, sees young Africans targeted and mainstreams in their mind that to be Australian, to love sport as Australians do, sport is brought to them by gambling. It is utterly pernicious and devastating. And of course, that word community, community, uh, what's the great illusion of... Uh, Pokies venue, a club, that it's community. Uh, the state government has got on the cheap 
community facilities in greenfield sites, new suburbs going in by allowing a pokies club or venue to be one of the first things built, saying, well, there you'll get a cheap cappuccino and maybe a cheap meal brought to you, community gift gifted to you by the pokies. Where do you go if you want to belong? It's safe. Someone maybe even knows your name. Uh, it's a pokies venue. This narrative, this capture of a wonderful rich word community by the gambling industry, I think was brilliantly illustrated in that video. And uh, yeah, really powerful. Thanks. Um, we, we have a question from Councillor Sarah Branton about if there are any significant cultural differences that we need to be aware of. I might go to you, Samantha, whether there's anything that's come through any of the research that, that you've done with your colleagues at Deakin around any cultural differences. There are, um, but I think at the heart of this, uh, the product remains the same. And the thing that I think is so remarkable about these products and the industry and the ads and the way it reaches people is that it has they have an incredible way of normalizing this as uh, an activity that you can engage in no matter what your socioeconomic background, um, whether you're, you know, Australian or a Kiwi like me or from another part of the world, um, at the heart of it, the product remains the same. And we need to start thinking, I think, about our community responses to the product and the industry that provides these products. For too long, we have blamed the individual. And we need to now start putting the spotlight on the industry and the government that regulates this industry. So it's a really important question, um, but I think at the heart of this, the vector is the industry and the policies that sit around that. Thanks. Well, we have another question from Councillor Virginia Tarkos. Um, how do we advocate for greater regulation and a possible curfew? Um, I might throw that to you, Tim. Yes, so we have at the Alliance for Gambling Reform a campaign running for uh, decreasing the hours. The, 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 these hours that they're open from 9 to 5, 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. is ridiculous. You've got to remember, these are state licences. It's, by the way, uh, the reason that it's so devastating to have donations, political donations from the AHA and the gambling industry. Why? Because their wealth is totally determined by state licences. New South Wales property developers cannot donate to political parties because planning decisions makes them rich. That is exactly the analogy here. The uh, donations by particularly the pokies uh, industry but that can include some of this the sports betting uh, online industries too is literally taking a state license our licenses and buying them that that's that's what has been going on um in terms of reform we are also pushing very strongly and we think we're starting to get somewhere finally to say uh, not just shorten uh, the hours, but see the machines slowed down. Uh, people can still buy their distraction time. That's what you're doing when you're feeding uh, notes into a machine at far less cost and harm 
and risk to themselves. Um, thirdly, we need overall to start retiring some of these pokies licenses. The new leader of the Alliance for Gambling Reform is a man called Gordon Ramsay, not the chef, but the former Attorney General of the ACT. He was in a Labor government there, missed out on getting re-elected uh, narrowly last election. Gordon Ramsay is the only politician in Australia that has retired pokies licenses. The ACT put pokies, decrease the number and put them out of business. So whether it's donations, shorter hours, slowing down the machines, eventually retiring licenses, there should not be the accessibility that there is in um, Bryn Bank. People, uh, if they want to gamble, can go to a casino destination, as I've said. But when they're going out to do their shopping, to buy their milk and bread, no intention, but because the venues are everywhere, off opposite train stations, so accessible, that, as I said, the Productivity Commission said, is what creates the greatest losses, the greatest harm of any nation in the world here in Australia. So uh, there are a few other things. Mm, thank you. Um, we've got a question from one of our viewers, Graham Bloor. Um, he's thanking you, Ian, for your um, wonderful presentation um, and asking how important do you think it is, um, how important is it to have alternative recreational and social activities? And um, I, get, I might even add, like, how, how has that been part of your journey, having some, some alternatives to fill the gap that, that was taken by gambling? Uh, look, the, um, having alternative recreational social activities is very important, um, but uh, having them close by, whether that's close by to where you live or close by to venues, um, is the question because... Having them close by to venues, uh, is a, there is a danger because uh, the venues offer luxury. They offer you the best, the best seating, the best carpet, um, the ultimate, the optimum temperature, um, cheap meals. Uh, they're open all hours of the day and night, uh, as Tim has said, um, they feel secure, uh, they're well-litten. Um, most uh, <clears throat> most venues uh, have a courtesy bus, which will virtually pick you up at the door and drop you off at the venue and take you home. Um, so having uh, alternative activities close to the, to the actual venues is a danger because alternative activities cannot offer you what the venues are offering you they can't offer you the security uh the lights the parking lots are well lit but not as well lit as uh as a venue uh they're not open uh the hours that the pokey venues are so if um if you want to play say bingo or probably not a good analogy but if you want to go to a um crocheting club um there's a limited time that the crochet club operates. Uh, if you work, the crochet clubs are uh, operating at two o'clock till three o'clock, you can't make it. But if you, a pokey venue is open, as Tim said, uh, from nine till five in the morning or uh, thereabouts. <clears throat> so alternative activities are very, very important uh, because uh, when you gamble, it takes up a lot of time 
uh, a lot of your time. And by having alternative activities, when you do stop gambling, you aren't twiddling your thumbs and wondering what you're going to do with that time that you've uh, that you've now got uh, on your hands. So with myself, um, I look back at some of the activities that I did when I was a, a kid, when I was younger, uh, activities that I'd given up, like bike riding. Um, I always loved pets, but I didn't have any pets because I didn't have time to look after them. I got a dog. I got birds, uh, budgies and lovebirds and cockatiels. Um, and they take up a, a lot of my time. I, I started fishing again, uh, which I used to do a lot when I was younger. Um, I also looked at activities that I've never tried and I never thought I would. One of those was uh, snorkeling. Um, I have a great fear of sharks. So going into the ocean and sort of waiting around for hours and hours, uh, but it's just so, I found it so relaxing. I love the ocean. I love the sea. Um, and snorkeling, I've snorkeled in Vanuatu, I've snorkeled in, in Queensland, in Cairns, um, I've snorkeled around Victoria, uh, and yeah, it's something I never thought I'd try, but I did, and I absolutely love it. Uh, bike riding, um, I get out on my bike as, as often as I can, um, walking my dogs, uh, I walk them to ad nauseum, especially when I first uh, stopped uh, gambling because I did have all that time on my hands uh, and I just didn't know what to do with it. So I take the dogs for a walk uh, once or twice a day, sometimes for a couple of hours and the poor dogs would come home and sort of <laughs> lay on their beds and they were gone. Um, but yeah, so alternative activities are really, really important, but I just see that there's a danger by having them close to, uh, to venues that they may not serve the purpose uh, that they're intended to, uh, to serve. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I might go to you, Samantha. I've got a question around, um, I guess, with losses from online gambling appear to have increased a lot during the COVID shutdown. And also, I think with um, a better data collection now through the state government, we're understanding how much money is being spent on online gambling. But from your point of view and from the research that you've done um what needs to be done to, to ensure that online gambling and, and betting on sports and, and races doesn't become an even bigger problem than pokies? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And we do a huge amount of research um, in our team looking at young people and gambling. And we look at the role of marketing and advertising in normalising gambling for young people. And we know now from our research that young people, um, over 80% of them can name uh, the brand name of at least one gambling company. Uh, we know that they can uh, recite the, um, the slogans in the ads. One of the things that's really interesting about young people that we've seen over the last few years is they actually don't talk about the odds anymore they talk about the deals that the companies offer. Mm -hmm. So they talk about the cashback offers. They talk about the money back offers. If you kick, the, if your team kicks the first goal but goes on to lose the match, we'll give you your money back up to $50. These messages have become ingrained in young people's minds. But we also know that young people are highly critical of gambling marketing. They want governments and sporting codes and organisations to do more to protect them from being exposed to this marketing. Here's a caught in the crossfire of a whole range of different companies trying to spruik their company um, for quite a limited market share. And so one of the things that we 
know we can do that will make a difference both for adults and children is to start to get those ads off the telly. But it's not just the, the ads, it's those hoardings around the ground, it's the sponsorship logos on the shirt, it's the inducement nudges that are sent to people via their, their phones um, or via email messages. If we can make a start uh, in terms of addressing marketing, that will really help us to really get on top of online gambling. I think this is the new big issue for us. Um, these products are high-tech products. They are, you know, developed around a code. And the more that they are marketed, the more that people are exposed to that marketing, I think the more vulnerable our, our young people in particular start to become in terms of becoming the next generation of those impacted by gambling harm. Um, well, I think we can do a lot more to advocate for more to be done around the restrictions and curbing of marketing that our young people and our adults are exposed to. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, there's a lot to think about there and, and um, with our sporting codes. Um, we've got a, a couple of minutes left. So what I might do is just go around the panel um, quickly just with a, a, a brief answer, but I'm interested to um, get a sense of maybe one or two practical steps that you think that people can, in the community can take to prevent and reduce gambling harm. And this might be people who are directly affected or even people that aren't defect, um, directly affected, just your average person. What can people, what practical step could somebody take to prevent or reduce gambling harm? I'll start with you, Ian. Oh, okay. Thanks, uh, Brooke. Um, look, uh, I know uh, from my experience that there are three three ingredients to, uh, to gambling harm, and that is... Uh, the availability of venues or res the resource, uh, availability of time and the availability of money. So um, within the community, um, I can see that uh, a more robust system uh, for exclusion um, needs to be uh, petitioned for um, and putting more of the responsibility as... Uh, the other panelists have said a lot of responsibilities put on the individual uh, where with self-exclusion, it's a bit the same where um, pretty much the individual owns 90% of the responsibility and the uh, venues uh, own about 10% if that. Um, mm. So it needs to be made a, a much more robust system that uh, prevents those from uh, who have chosen to be excluded uh in their weakest moments, when they have the availability of money, when they have the availability of uh, of time, uh, to be to be uh, advised that they're not meant to to be there and to be recognised as someone that has chosen not to attend a venue. Um, but as uh, as Tim said earlier, the dopamine uh, rush in the, the anticipation of actually going to a venue uh, is almost as bad as the anticipation of having a win. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think the, uh, community needs to, uh, ask for a more robust self-exclusion, uh, program. Thanks. Yeah, that's, um, Samantha, a, a quick practical tip or suggestion for people? 
Yep, I think um, the main thing I would say is let's start to change the conversation around gambling. Let's stop blaming the individual and start to provide our communities with more honest information about the industry and the government policies that are not protecting our community. And the second thing I would say is get young people involved. Young people are incredible advocates for their own health. We see it in climate change. We saw it in tobacco control. Let's think about ways that we can involve young people in this discussion and starting to talk directly to those in positions of power about the harms that they're doing to our community. Thank you. And Tim, I'll, we'll finish with you, but um, yeah, what are your thoughts on some of those practical ideas? So, so there's a notion that gambling isn't dangerous. We have to get out the message. Gambling is actually dangerous. Uh, the extraordinary normalising and mainstreaming in this culture that says to be Australian is to have a punt. That has to be said, that is dangerous, like using ecstasy or uh, drugs. This is actually highly dangerous. Now, people will say, oh, you can't do it in the culture, but that's the truth. It is dangerous. What Samantha <clears throat> said about changing the narrative and responsible gambling, absolutely. Blaming the individual, you're irresponsible. Silences bring stigma. That responsible gambling slogan came when New South Wales clubs went to the National Rifle Association in America. They were taught, guns don't kill, people kill. Never blame the gun, blame the individual. They came back and said, pokies, gambling's fine. It's individuals that are irresponsible and sold that to state governments. A great thing for... Brimbank would be to say, we want the ending of all responsible gambling ads and we want the truth told that this is dangerous. It, uh, is, it is a serious risk. Well, thanks very much, Tim. That's a really good place to, um, to conclude the discussion. Thanks to all of the panellists um, today. Thanks to Ian, to Professor Samantha Thomas and to, um, and to Tim Costello for joining us tonight. Um, I'll hand back now to Lindley to conclude proceedings. Thank you. Thank you, Brooke. And thanks to everyone for attending tonight's community conversation for Gambling Harm Awareness Week. We have covered a lot of ground. It's been great to hear such a wide range of perspectives and ideas for how we can prevent and reduce gambling harm in Brimbank. Before we go, I would like to thank our three amazing speakers, Professor Samantha Thomas, Ian Korea, the Reverend Tim Costello. And a big thank you to our Deputy Mayor, Councillor Jasmine Nguyen for opening tonight's event and to our councillors, many who are in the audience tonight. They are all strong advocates on the issue of gambling harm. Thanks also to Ralph Barber from Making Media Australia for producing tonight's event and to Respin for connecting us with Ian, one of our speakers. I would also like to mention some of the other things Council is doing for Gambling Harm Awareness Week. Pathways from the Pokies is a one hour podcast exploring behavioural change techniques used by one person to overcome addiction. It will be broadcast tomorrow at 6pm and again on Friday at 2pm on www.livefm.online. Libraries After Dark continues in Brimbank with an online financial wellbeing session tomorrow night at 7pm. 
please visit our website to register. And finally, please note the council has now launched its new Reducing Gambling Harm website, which will become a one-stop shop for information, resources and support. A recording of tonight's event will soon be available on the site, so you can share with any friends or family who might be interested. Please visit our website for more information. Thank you so much and have a great evening. Thank you.